Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankowski. Thanks so much for joining us. Rising seas are a frightening reality for coastal communities, especially historic towns that have been built right up to the water's edge over the last few centuries. Provincetown, Massachusetts, right at the tip of Cape Cod, is a perfect example of this kind of community. The entire look and feel of the place is shaped by its precarious location. Last month, the city was featured in a Design Lover's Guide to Provincetown by Architectural Digest magazine, which described it as where the Cape Cod Peninsula curls into a final clutch of sand. But that sand is slowly giving way to a rising sea, and a group of Harvard architecture students, also taken with the town's charms, are designing a future of Provincetown. The course is led by Preston Scott Cohen, a professor of architecture at Harvard's Graduate School of Design. He joined us a few months back, along with one of his students, Adam Sherman. Now, Cohen knows Provincetown, its quirky charm, and its unique terrain well. He started by describing the main artery of the town, Commercial Street. It's a very gently curving crescent. But what's special, one of the things that's really special about it is this is a street with buildings on both sides. Some of us in architecture call that a double-loaded street. But anyway, what happens is you've got all these buildings cheek to jowl, very intimately, you know, bound to this street. And it's a super important street. This is where the festivals, the, the carnival takes place, the all of the commerce and social life. The, this is a street of spontaneity. It's the whole life of the place. I mean, people come to Provincetown because of the kind of experience they have being on this street and then that they can go out into nature. So, so immediately, they can go right out to the beach behind all of the buildings on uh, one side of a street and then they can go in biking and hiking and all kinds of other things in the other direction. The, you know, the landscape surrounding is... Jason in such a beautiful and immediate way. But the the way this is such an intense, small scale, you know, and it's and it's formed so much around the life of this important street called Commercial Street with buildings on both sides. And, you know, the character of the place. It's so important. It's been painted by artists, you know, again and again. And and our thinking is that when people talk about climate change, they're mainly talking about survival, you know, like how are we going to ha- you know, deal with the, the crisis itself? But they're not thinking as much about what will happen after the crisis. Will we ever recuperate the cultural heritage that is lost to these changes? Can we rebuild it in another way? Can we constitute it in some other, you know, forward-moving way, but that also has a strong connection to it, the past, and and preserve the ability to hold these important social events and continue with these rituals like the carnival in a, in a wonderful way under, you know, within a new shaped, newly shaped city. So maybe describe a bit for us about what sea level rise looks like specifically in Provincetown. Often when we, when we see those maps that have been devised to 
uh, give us a sense of what 10 years or 20 years of sea level rise will look like, we can really start to imagine what parts of our built environment will be subsumed by the ocean. But in this specific case, maybe you can give us an idea of, of what changes when the water rises. Yes. Well, there's, we tested numerous scenarios. There are numerous things that will affect the way the landscape form is reshaped as the water rises. But we did some tests that showed that it's likely that there will be some deep incursions. There will be water that actually invades parts of the city and breaks the continuity of this wonderful artery, this, this crescent-shaped street that we've discussed. The other prospect that we confronted is that the houses that are on the seaside of the street, many of those will be on lots that are submerged. So we, we were looking at a really different you know, plan of the shape of the land and trying to figure out would we reshape Commercial Street, p- put the buildings in a very different relationship with it. What we kind of devise, and I really want Adam to talk further about this because he was actually designing one of the projects, is that we thought there were three basic strategies that we could address. We called them defense, offense, and retreat. And they're really different ideas. Offense is um, building out over the water in some way. Defense is, as I said, jetty, you know, some kind of the measures that could try to hold the water back, basically, in different ways, uh, having to do with reshaping the land artificially to do that, to defend as much of the current condition as we could. And retreat was to actually move away from the water, to reshape the city, pull it back, and, and, and define a new kind of commercial street that's uphill somewhat from the water uh, and therefore defended in that form. So, you know, they really led to very different design speculations. The students invented all sorts of new, different future province towns, as it were. Mm. We came up with 13 new province towns to imagine. Well, let, let me talk to Adam Sherman, who, who has imagined one of those, those future province towns. Tell us about the model you created for a future province town. Sure, yeah. So my strategy, I think, would fall pretty squarely within the camp of retreat. And so for for me, the idea was there were certain non-negotiable realities of the town that had to be preserved uh, in any future instantiation. And so for me, what that boiled down to was, as Scott had said, the idea of the double-loaded street, the fact that Provincetown is different from other beach towns because it has houses on both sides of its main artery. And so for me, because uh, sea level rise was going to wipe out the, the lower, the southern half of uh, Commercial Street, the idea was to not only move Commercial Street back half a block, but also elevate it 25 feet in the air. And so effectively, my design had these sort of elevated boardwalks um, emanating out from the town center uh, running throughout the entire town. And... The motivation behind that was was twofold. The first being that uh, if we look at the projections of sea level rise as well as uh, the added risk of storm surge over the next 100 years, there's certainly going to be um, a need to completely live on this new level in some respect. But also, 
I, I was kind of thinking about the fact that, you know, even a strategy 100 years away or 50 years away is still quite far in the future. And so how does the town continue to go through its daily life in the decades that are, are going to uh, precede kind of a complete abandonment of the ground plane? And so by putting a, a second level of the city right above the first level of the city, it creates a sort of tension or conversation in between the old and the new in the way that can both pay respect to the traditional ways of life within Provincetown as well as speculate about some new types of urban environment that hadn't yet been, been seen within the town. The, the commercial street that you build just a block away or half a block away and, and a little bit elevated from the original commercial street, is it meant to be an exact replica? Is it meant to carry the same function but have different sorts of structures? What, what, what were you envisioning in terms of, of taking what people now know about Commercial Street and transforming it to this new level? It, it's not an exact replica, but it is also not a completely newly uh, authored street. The idea was not only were we looking at the character of the urban form in general, but also the character of the individual houses. And so uh, the new structures that I was suggesting that would go along this boardwalk are within a vernacular style. They have the same type of general organization that the houses that are currently on Commercial Street have. But in this case, they're more equipped to effectively be put on stilts and raised 20 feet into the air. And so I think for somebody who's known Provincetown their whole life to see my scheme Effectively, what you would have is you you would be able to see that and say, okay, that is clearly different, but there is a respect for the character of the town. And it's not a complete overworking uh, and reworking of every single aspect of how uh, life is along Commercial Street. Scott, a a last question for you. As as we think about all of the communities along the seacoast of New England that face in some ways the same threat that Provincetown does— how do you think that the the things that you learned here, the designs that you and your students came up with, how do you think that they can be applied widely elsewhere as as other historic communities say, we've got to figure out whether or not to to attack the ocean or retreat from the ocean or or try to play some defense? I think first of all, I want to call attention to how important the form of our cities is in our lives and the relationship architecture has to the form of the city and that it is it's an evolving organic relationship and that sea level rise is a is a radical you know potentially radical a radical rupture uh, uh, it it really tears cities up i mean sometimes and that's a very traumatic thing but it's traumatic as i said not only because of the actual economic you know the actual physical and economic catastrophe that it you know that it it brings but also there is as adam is saying this question of the the rituals the the particular social character of the city how that you know has to come back together and 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 while we have to move the city forward in response to this i i think we just what i really want people to understand is how important it is to be remain cognizant of that relationship between urban form and architectural form and its effects on our social experiences. And, and, and that really is the message that I wanted to kind of have you know, ring out again because the, the, the kind of attention to the technical solutions to climate change has, is, is very important but should not, let's say, eclipse 
the attention to the effects it has on culture and social life. Preston Scott Cohen is a professor of architecture at Harvard University's Graduate School of Design. He led the course, The Future of Provincetown. Adam Sherman was a student in the course this semester and is a Master of Architecture candidate at the Graduate School of Design. I want to thank you both for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you want to see some photos of what the Harvard architecture students came up with for Provincetown's future, just go to nextnewengland.org. Climate change for many people is a big, distant, looming threat, but not something to tackle or even think about every day. At least that's what Dr. Elizabeth Pinsky used to think. Then last October, Pinsky clicked open a U.N. report that describes a world racked by drought, flooding, and extreme heat by 2040. She began waking in the dark of the night, picturing... Mad Max beyond Thunderdome, my children are going to be searching for water in a post-apocalyptic wasteland... Not just my kids don't have the future that I want for them, but, like, my kids don't have a future. In the light of day, Pinsky, who's a pediatrician and child psychiatrist, gave herself some therapeutic advice. Do something. Now, every daily action and decision for Pinsky and her family includes this question. What will help protect the Earth? We can't turn away from this at all anymore. It needs to be something that is part of the, like, drumbeat of our lives and of what we're doing. WBUR reporter Martha Biebinger met Pinsky outside one afternoon, just outside a T-station, to see what life looks like with climate change front and center. Dr. Pinsky takes the red line from her office at Mass General to a stop about a half mile from her son Ben's school in Somerville. All right, you want to show off how you can do this kickstand and everything? Ben, who's just turned six, takes off on a purple and white two-wheeler. Some days, if Ben is tired, he and his sister get a ride on the family cargo bike. So there's like this little platform for me to sit on, and the booster in the back is for my sister. Why don't we cross here, Ben, so we have... Home is about 30 minutes on foot. If there's a time crunch or too much snow, Pinsky or her wife will drive. But as much as possible, we're doing it human-powered. On the route home, Pinsky might stop at one of the secondhand stores where she's started buying the family's clothes, books, and toys. Consume less is one of Pinsky's mantras. Waste less is another. So she's found stores where she can refill jars of oil, vinegar, beans, rice, and nuts to avoid plastic packaging. Davis Square is the reason why we're able to do a lot of this stuff. Meaning Meaning live mostly on our feet, whether it's by bike or walking. All right. You're good to go. As Ben pedals the final yards home, Pinsky wonders if her kind, thoughtful son will feel like he can bring a child into the world. Ben will turn 27 in 2040, a tipping point of sorts, as Pinsky understands it, for intensifying heat and drought. And now that we know that it's the very near future and it's like the bulk of our kids' lives, it just feels very different. For Pinsky as a parent and as a physician... And so if I'm going to say, you know, I'm a doctor, my job is to make children and families physically and emotionally healthier, there is no greater threat than this. Back in October, when Pinsky and her wife read the UN report and decided to make using less carbon a daily priority, they looked online for guidance about how to have the biggest impact. The one nobody likes to talk about is having fewer kids. By one assessment, having one less child has at least four times the impact of living car-free. Some of the other very big ones are limiting the amount of 
air travel that we do, eating a, ideally a totally plant-based diet, but eating less meat and certainly, certainly eating less um, beef. But Pinsky has two reasonably devoted carnivores. I mean, if I told Ben we weren't going to have chicken anymore, it would not go well. In the kitchen, Ben climbs onto a stool, ready to make one of the few new non-meat dishes he and three-year-old Margaret will eat, at least when covered in ketchup, tofu dippers. Ben rolls strips of tofu in oil and drops them in a reusable plastic bag filled with cornmeal. And then, like, rub that stuff around. I know that. After dinner, the tofu dippers Margaret and Ben do not eat will go into a compost bin that gets picked up weekly or down to the worm bin in the basement. Hundreds of red wigglers turn the family's food scraps into fertilizer. They are really stinky. The worms come via a free stuff website where the family gives away as much as it takes. Pinsky's wife, Sarah Cable, summarizes the biggest challenge for their waste less life in one word. Plastic. Cable says thinking about the outcome of every container you buy, every action you take, can be overwhelming. It's hard to keep thinking about that. It's scary. So I think holding that in our minds, I think it's a, one of the most important things we do, I think. Cable and Pinsky have learned that they need a break every now and then from that avoid catastrophe mindset. This is U.S. Right. air travel, four tickets round trip. But air travel to Orlando, Florida, home of Disney World, is high on the carbon impact list. The family went anyway last February. So we spent 100 bucks on carbon offsets to sort of try to take that piece of anxiety related to the trip away. Pinsky pauses. Her shoulders drop. God, I just sound insufferable. How do you talk about these things without sounding like a total... I mean, really, how? Pinsky says she knows carbon offsets are a luxury many cannot afford. And she acknowledges that the green electricity she pays extra for, or washing her clothes in cold water, or using dryer balls to reduce drying time, are all irrelevant given the scope of climate change. But she sleeps better now. She's doing something. Working this into our lives and into our decision-making and into the things that we talk to our friends and our family about helps a lot with that feeling of, like, hopelessness and fear. And Pinsky's banking on a ripple effect. One more co-worker who switches from paper cups to reusable mugs. One more person who calls their congressperson or shows up at a rally. One more mom or dad biking with their kids to school and work. It's how Pinsky copes for now. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Martha Biebinger. Coming up, we'll hear some stories of vloggers in Vermont. But first, the future of fishing. Does it look more like farming? From the New England News Collaborative, this is next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. I'm a restorative ocean farmer. It's a trade both old and new, a job rooted in thousands of years of history. 
dating back to Roman times. I used to be a commercial fisherman chasing your dinner on the high seas for a living, but now I farm 20 acres of saltwater, growing a mix of sea greens and shellfish. I've paid my debt to the sea. I dropped out of high school to fish and spent too many nights in jail. My body is beat to hell. I crawl out of bed like a lobster most mornings. I've lost vision in half my right eye from a chemical spill in Alaska. I'm an epileptic who can't swim, and I'm allergic to shellfish. But every shiver of pain has been worth it. It's a meaningful life. I'm proud to spend my days helping feed my community, and if all goes well, I will die in my boat one day. Maybe get a small obit in the town paper, letting friends know that I was taken by the ocean, that I died a proud farmer growing food underwater, that I wasn't a tree hugger, but spent my days listening to and learning from the waves and weather, that I believed in building a world where we can all make a living on a living planet. That's Bren Smith reading from his new book, Eat Like a Fish, My Adventures as a Fisherman Turned Restorative Ocean Farmer. Bren began his career as a commercial fisherman, but he's now owner of Thimble Island Oyster Company, a 3D restorative ocean farm in Connecticut. So what exactly is a 3D restorative ocean farm? Well, Smith says it might just be the future of working on the sea. It's a lot different than the life he used to live. You know, when I shifted from a commercial fisherman on the Bering Sea in Alaska to a salmon fisherman and then a shellfish, and the shift from fishing to farming was actually kind of unsettling and boring. You know, for me as a fisherman, I, I, I always chased fish, you know, further and further out to sea. And it was, it was an adventurous life. And farming is much more sort of meditative, careful, slower. So that was a challenge. That said, the similarity is there's still sort of jobs you can sing songs about, right? Mm. They're jobs with meaning or the pride of helping feed the country. You, you own your own boat, no boss, a self-directed life. So although I don't chase and kill things anymore, I still have that part. The life of the fisherman, is, as you say, is it's hard, it's dangerous, and you're, you're chasing this living thing. How did your relationship with that work change as you grew older and you learned more about the work that you were doing? Yeah. You know, I showed up, especially in the Bering Sea, I just loved it, right? The, the wild humility of being in you know, 40-foot seas, the, the hours I love, 30-hour shifts with 13 other people in the belly of a boat. But as I, uh, you know, I eventually went back to college for a while and then kept on going back to Alaska and just learned the context that I was working in, which was, you know, I was working in the height of an industrialized fishery, tearing up whole ecosystems. And most of the fish I was catching was going to McDonald's for the fish sandwich. So, you know, when I, when I faced that context... I realized I love my job as an incredible job, but it was it was extractive and there needed to be some changes. But, you know, it wasn't this – I wasn't an environmentalist. It was really a question, a realization that, oh, for me to make a living on the ocean, we, we had to become stewards of the ocean. Could, could you talk more about that? You say you weren't an environmentalist. What, what does that mean? Why is that an important thing for you to say? I mean – and this is exp- extremely relevant, I think, for climate change. So it's it's been framed by environmentalists forever about sort of bears and bees and birds and really about protecting the natural uh, world. But most of us who work, we experience it as a kitchen table issue, right? There are going to be no jobs on a dead planet. When the cod stocks crashed in Newfoundland, back where I was from, 30,000 people thrown out of work overnight, the biggest layoff in Canadian history. And it was amazing to watch 
a culture and an economy built up literally over a hundred years just disappear over overnight. And that's when I, you know, this idea that we need to make a living on a living planet, that goal uh, had to motivate all of us from all different sort of aspects, whether we're, you know, foodies who love uh, seaweeds and oysters, whether we're environmentalists that really care about the birds or the bees, or those of us that, you know, work in the water. Mm. So so you moved from, from ocean fishing into aquaculture, and your early experiences in aquaculture are a bit different than what your experiences are today. Explain to people who don't know what aquaculture exactly is, because there's a lot of tears to this idea. So aquaculture is really farming the ocean. um, And traditionally, it's always been about farming fish. And the reason is, you know, we fish and we wipe out the fish and then we decide, okay, we're going to grow what we've wiped out because that's what the markets demand. That's what tastes demand. So it's traditionally been about growing, you know, salmon, tunas, things like that. That's what people like to eat. Yeah, exactly. What I found when I arrived on the salmon farms, because that was supposed to be the great hope, right? In, in jobs for uh, fishermen, we're going to feed the planet, all this sort of stuff. Instead, it did exactly what land-based industrial farming did, but in the sea, right? Monoculture using antibiotics, pesticides, polluting local waterways, I mean, really growing neither fish nor food, Iowa pig farms at sea. So instead of looking at the ocean as this unique agricultural space and asking the ocean, okay, what do you want us to grow? Um, We just grew around existing wild tastes. And I think that was a mistake. So after I left the salmon farms, I didn't know what I'd end up doing, but that was a journey of really asking the ocean, okay, what makes sense? And as you ask the the ocean that question, going from there, what, what was the ocean telling you? What, what were you learning about what the ocean wants humans to grow? You know, I ended up here in Long Island Sound. It's sort of this full circle of my my family. I, I, I never expected it. Um, lived in an Airstream trailer in Guilford. For, it was supposed to be uh, about six months. It ended up being uh, seven years, which uh, the first six months were great, by the way. <laughs> I, and so I, I started with oysters, and I was a terrible farmer. I ran a death camp, right, killing millions of oysters cause, just because <laughs> I didn't know how to farm. But what oysters taught me was that if you grow things that don't want to swim away and you don't have to feed, it's a game changer. Mm. So – because we have all these species that can grow just with nutrients that are in the water that we have too much of, too much nitrogen, too much carbon, too much phosphorus, and grow with sunlight, it becomes really a simple, elegant, and quite honestly, cheap way to grow food. When you talk about something like oysters, the the market for oysters has changed even over our lifetimes. They used to be something that people ate as food, and then it became a bit of a delicacy, and then they were off menus as people ate whatever salmon was coming from the grocery store. And now there's a boom in things like oysters. I mean, in in some part, Brent, the idea that you could farm oysters right now in Long Island Sound or or up in Maine comes from the fact that people really now do want to eat them and pay you some money for them. What's amazing in American culture is that food has become central. I mean, you know, I grew up in the 80s uh, on the fish stick and the, the, the fish sandwich out of McDonald's, which I, you know, I love those both. <laughs> yeah, I get my lonely moments and I'll go to a parking lot and gobble a couple fish sandwiches <laughs> out of McDonald's. But food has become a central sort of discussion point, community, anchor. 
And it's just amazing to see. And oysters were one of these agents of sustainability that we could eat and actually change, rearrange the plate to create a sort of environmental cuisine or what I think of as a, as a climate cuisine. Now, I think one of the key things from a farming perspective is to always move beyond monoculture. Mother Nature abhors monoculture. Right? She introduces disease and all sorts of things. So the great thing about the ocean is we can do polyculture. There are 10,000 plants in the ocean, hundreds of kinds of shellfish. So the question for me was, okay, let's take 20 acres and figure out all the different things we can grow in those 20 acres that are you know, indigenous to Long Island Sound. So, so what does that look like? Maybe you can describe for our listeners what 20 acres of a polyculture in the ocean looks like. What's in there? Yeah, so we call it restorative ocean farming. And imagine an underwater garden where you've got anchors down the bottom and then just buoys up to the surface and, and then horizontal lines about eight feet below the surface. And from there, we grow our kelp vertically downwards. We attach mussels in something we call mussel socks, scallops and lantern nets. And in my farm, I've got oyster cages on, sitting on the sea floor and then clams down in the mud. And this sea basket approach of growing year-round different species that diversifies risk for the farmer. But the interesting thing is because it's all underwater and all it is is just rope scaffolding, that's really cheap. You just need like 20, 30 grand to, to, to start and, and, get up and uh, get up and going. But it also has a really low aesthetic impact. So you can boat, fish, swim over the farm. Some of the best fishing in the whole area, I'm in the Thimble Islands, is right on my right on my site and has a low aesthetic impact. And this is really important, right? Our oceans are these beautiful, pristine places. And instead of massive fish pens, uh, we can have these aesthetically low impact farms. Mm. Brent Smith is the owner of Thimble Island Oyster Company. It's an ocean farm in Connecticut. He's the author of a new book called Eat Like a Fish, My Adventures as a Fisherman Turned Restorative Ocean Farmer. You can find more information about the work that he's doing on nextnewengland.org. Brent, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much. Total honor. We were struck by this line from Bren's book, There are no songs about hedge fund managers or lawyers. There are hundreds about us. Now, those songs come in many styles, including the sea shanty, once the soundtrack of the golden age of sail. The shanty, sadly, has gone the way of other traditional work songs, relegated to folk festivals, history museums, and a few tourist schooners. But in mid-coast Maine, shanties that have sat in the archives for nearly 100 years are getting a new life, and they're being put back to work on Penobscot Bay. From Maine Public Radio, Ari Snyder has more. The chorus goes like this. Try it. At a private home in Northport, Bennett Kinesny is teaching a sea shanty to a group of about 10 singers. Well, the boys and the girls went huckleberry hunting. Kinesny is a musician and farmer from Belfast and the founder of the Work Song Community Chorus. Its mission, he says, is to bring work songs of all kinds out of the archives and back into use on the farm, on the water, or by the woodpile. In recent years, Kinesny has focused on reviving maritime work songs, better known as sea shanties, or simply shanties. Well, at the root of sea shanties is the call and response format. Might be a direct call and response where they just sing exactly what the shanty man's saying, or it could be something slightly different. Tell me what would you give for your fine leg of mutton? Oh. What would you give for your fine leg? 
Knezny was introduced to shanties as a teenager while working on schooners. This is where he learned that specific shanties match the rhythm of different tasks. For example, he says he discovered that raising the anchor with a hand-cranked machine called a windlass creates a slow and steady beat that gave a structure to the song. And you create a rhythm, it's like, chung, chung, chung. So we might sing a song like, Oh, Cape Cod girls don't use no combs. Heave away, haul away. They comb their hair with the codfish bones. And we're bound away for Australia. Traditionally, these songs were led by a shantyman, usually a member of the crew, and they'd only be sung while working. They felt it was wrong and even bad luck to sing a shanty when you weren't working. Stephen Sanfilippo of Pembroke and his wife, Susan, are part of a small but passionate community of sea music experts. He says shanties helped sailors do their work, but also gave them cover to openly complain about and even to make fun of the ship's captain and officers. It's subversive. They sing out at their work and they very often in a shanty in a way that they couldn't in speech are highly critical. One not so subtle example of this subversion can be found in the song called From New York Harbor, where one verse jokes about throwing the captain overboard as shark food. The shanty tradition had its heyday during the mid to late 1800s, when global trade relied on huge wooden sailing ships, many of which were built in Maine. Sipper Lee Good, a curator at the Penobscot Marine Museum in Searsport, says Maine also supplied a lot of the manpower to sail those ships. I like to think of, of the Maine captains and crews. They were like the tractor-trailer drivers of today. This period, before the advent of steamships, is known as the Golden Age of Sail. It's that romantic version of sailing around Cape Horn, um, sailing to China, those of us alive today who wish we were back then. <laughs> it's the golden age. One Searsport resident who did live through the golden age of sail was Joanna Colkert. Colkert was actually born at sea in 1882 on her father's ship during a voyage from New York to Japan. She spent the first 18 years of her life at sea and went on to found the Penobscot Marine Museum with her brother. Joanna helped capture what life was like at sea, and she was able to write it down in books and articles. She captured the sea shanties. Today, Colkert's shanty book is an important source of primary material for Bennett Konesny's work song chorus. One more day, it's really neat to think of sort of connecting the community through sound connecting people who live on the shore back to the ocean through that sound and back through time through those songs. This summer, the chorus will put the songs back to work in a 38-foot wooden rowboat on Penobscot Bay. For the shanties once heard from Searsport to Singapore, it's a small but vocal comeback. <laughs> For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Ari Snyder in Belfast, Maine. Coming up, the Vermont loggers who still do their work by hand. It's next.
Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Support also comes from the Melville Charitable Trust. One of the big changes in the culture and economy of the northern forest has been the transition from small-scale logging to mechanized logging using big, heavy machinery. Audio producer Erica Heilman went in search of the loggers who are still doing it the old-fashioned way, cutting down trees with chainsaws, attaching the logs to cables, and then dragging them out using what's called a skitter. In her journey through the woods of northeastern Vermont and adjoining New Hampshire, Erica discovered what makes these loggers different and learns about the intimate relationship between a forested region and the people who work there. Here's her story. I've lost friends, yes. Yeah. Lost uh, Danny Champagne. He got killed in Gilman Woods. Pinned, I believe. He was young. Too bad. Why do you do this job? I guess I'm doing it because it's what I know how to do, basically. Yeah. That's David Ranclose. He's a logger in Colebrook, New Hampshire, up near Vermont's Northeast Kingdom. And his primary tools are a truck, a chainsaw, and a cable skitter. Mostly he works in the woods alone. Up until about 30 years ago, logging up in what was called the Champion Lands in the Northeast Kingdom was done with a chainsaw and skitter. Teams of loggers cutting by hand, pulling trees out of the woods with cables. Then in the early 80s, mechanized came in, feller bunchers and grapplers, equipment that's much bigger, much safer, and 10 times faster than men with chainsaws. It's also a lot more comfortable. You can listen to the radio, you can turn up the heat. Now almost all of that industrial land in the Great Northern Forest is logged this way, and a lot of cable skidding loggers up in that area have changed over to mechanized. But if you drive around in the kingdom, well, pretty much anywhere in rural Vermont and New Hampshire, you'll still see skidders parked in people's dooryards. You'll still see pickup trucks parked along the side of the road at turnoffs leading into the woods. You see these loggers working in smaller woodlots and residential woodlots, felling trees with chainsaws at 20 below, dragging cables through waist-deep snow. It's dangerous work, and they're a resilient lot, and they prefer logging by hand. This story is about them. Welcome. I grew up on a dairy farm, and we cut wood whenever we weren't doing something with the cattle. So from like five, six years old, I started uh, logging with my father, you know, just watching it first. By eight years old, he was teaching me to use hand tools, pulp hooks, cant dogs. By probably 12 or 13, I was running a chainsaw. And at the end of my high school, the uh, government bought the dairy farms in this area out. There was too much milk on the market, so they bought the dairy farms out. So we went to logging full time. And him and I logged full-time until he passed away three, two years ago. Some people, when they're growing up, they have, like, their heroes. You know, they want to be a fireman or they want it. Like, my hero was, like, the lumberjack. You know, like, reading books and, like, they're standing next to these huge trees, you know, with their, their pants, they're, like, chopped off and they were in the spike boots. I don't know, like, I was just so attracted to that, being that person. Yeah. I don't care if I have to dig a hole in the ground eight feet deep or if you put me up in the air 40 feet painting at the end of the day as long as I get a paycheck but I want to be outside I don't want to be inside so do not mind a hard day's work it makes the beer taste better at the end of the day 
my father was he was the one that showed me how to do every single thing I, I learned and probably the proudest day I had in the woods was one day I cut a tree that was a, every tree is different and it takes a lot of years of knowledge to know what a tree is going to do you know when you cut it and I cut that tree and I made it do something that was very skillful it was a quite an art to make it do what I wanted it to do. When it hit the ground, we stopped and he told me, you're better than I am. And that was a big day for me. Well, I'll tell you, if you don't have self-motivation, then you're never gonna make it in the logging industry. So, you know, when you look at the thermometer and it says 30 below, pour yourself an extra thermos of coffee, Leave an hour or two earlier because the skitter probably isn't going to start, which means... Well, when you see uh, like old sap buckets grown into the tree, you say someone was here, you know, a hundred years ago, and you, you, you respect it. You respect the woods that you're working in. I, I love the woods, and I love the trees, but I also love cutting the trees. So then you get your chainsaw, you got to have a chainsaw. And when you crank and crank and crank and the thing won't start because it's froze, so what do you do? You, you stand up on the skidder tire, you stick it up on the roof where the exhaust pipe comes out, and you let the exhaust blow on it. Um, so for a forester five, comes minutes. in and marks and all the trees that they want the cut. Running. A lot of foresters time, use blue because a lot of 40-year-old men can't see red very good. But it's... The sounds of trees crashing and then dead silence. The sound of a trucker coming in to get your wood and leaving with it. It's all, it's, it's almost what you live for. Well, finally you get the saw running. And by that time, your fingers are so cold, you can't feel your fingers. So then you have to stick them on the exhaust pipe. And you still ain't got to hit your wood on the yard. And you, but it's in your blood. And there is... A moment when the tree starts to fall. If you're in a forest, a thick forest, all the limbs are touching another limb that they weren't a second ago. When the tree hits the ground, there's what's called throwback. The energy from the tree hitting the ground will throw sometimes large limbs back at you. So the moment that this all happens, you have to be just aware of everything in your environment. You, you have to feel, you have to feel what is gonna happen. The big thing is not to get too comfortable doing it, you know, because I've found myself, if I'm in a hurry, I'll stop looking up. You know, I've got trees falling and no idea what it, you know, so I catch myself back up, pay attention to what you're doing again. You can get rushing and, and get ahead of yourself, and that's something you shouldn't do, because that's usually when something goes wrong. But I don't know, I've been lucky this far. I was cutting this balsam fir. So I made my notch and I'm making my back cut. And usually I don't look back up. Usually I'm paying attention to my hinge and, and my back cut, making sure I don't overcut. And something on this particular tree told me to look back up. And I look back up the tree and here come this porcupine. And he's probably five feet from my head, and he's barreling out of that tree. All I remember is I threw that chainsaw, and I just dove into the brush. And 
if I hadn't looked back up, he would have landed on the back of my neck. And uh, that was a scary moment. He went his way, and I went back, got my saw, and went back to work. So, <laughs> <coughs> Yeah, I had one guy who was hurt pretty bad. Blood all over everything. Stringy, dried up blood. It was like a deep cut blood. Instead of going to the doctor, he went home first because he just bought a new pair of boots and he weren't going to let him cut them off. He made his wife take them off because they ruined his last pair of boots when he got cut. Of course, they pretty lost him in Cobra because he filmed pretty blood to death. And it just goes to show you. <laughs> he didn't want his new boots cut off. He always seemed to be picked on the logger because you could do 99 good jobs and nobody knows you but you do that one bad job everybody knows you and them loggers you know oh look at the mess they left over here look at you know look at that hillside gone i often look at a stand that's been logged say 15 20 years ago and i'll judge the logger I'll be like, oh, this logger didn't do a great job, mainly because of like residual stand damage, like trees are marked up. A good logger doesn't mark up trees. They clean up the job well with water bars, and that's my standard because that's my reputation. And there's plenty of good loggers out there that really are passionate about the woods. You know, they want to be stewards of the land. We made more money years ago because now we're trying to compete with mechanized, so that's making it very hard for somebody by hand. Anyways, I mean, you're... You got mechanized, can come in and cut ungodly amounts of wood where by hand again, you're pretty much set. It's all volumes now. The more, the better. I, I really don't see a, a future of, of hand work in the woods. The people won't do it. And now that a lot of us are getting older, we can't do it. But a small, Landowner can't have these big operations come into their property. They just don't have the room. It just, they need a certain amount of money to be able to move all of their equipment onto your property and do this work. Whereas I can move in a very small time. If you can't afford to keep your land open, you're going to have to sell it. It's, so the whole area is going to change because of losing a certain type of person. My neighbor needed a roof for his house. He asked me, can you come up and cut enough so I can put a roof on my house this fall? I went and cut enough so that he could pay for a roof. He can't go to the huge contractor down there and say, can you come cut me $900 worth of wood? You know, it's just impossible. That can't happen. So the small person like me is a service that people need. Between logging and farming, what, what would we have? There is nothing. Logging is the heart and soul of the North Country. There's like one thing I could tell people is how passionate some people can be about the woods. I mean, I always walk old jobs. I usually carry a shovel with me so I can kick out water bars that get, most of the time it's from the landowner or somebody else driving a four-wheeler on them or something else and they never fix the water bar so I have to go back through. Um, just That's just for me, um, like a peace of mind. And I almost judge myself, again, you know, as if, as if I'm judging somebody else that logged it. I think it becomes almost like, <laughs> almost like a child. 
you know, I'm in a job for two months and I'm there every day. Um, and I care for it, you know, and I really care about the work. That's why I carry my shovel with me to make sure I'm maintaining it still. You've been listening to loggers David Ranclose, Tony Hibbard, Jim Welsh, Michael Belknap, and Dana Field. The piece was produced by Erica Heilman. The music is by Vermont musician Brian Clark. This podcast is part of the Resilient Forest series. It's produced by Northern Woodlands and is supported by the Davis Conservation Foundation and the Larson Fund. Most of the loggers you heard are part of the landscape of the vast working forest of Vermont's Northeast Kingdom the subject of a special report in the summer 2019 issue of Northern Woodlands magazine. You can find that reporting at northernwoodlands.org. And you can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to, just search for Next New England. And if you like what you hear, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Next is produced by Lily Tyson. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. The executive producer is Katie Tularski. We had music this week from Todd Merrill, Goodnight Blue Moon, Wise Old Moon, and Chris Ross and the North. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and the Public Radio. 